Hi, this is Tom Field, Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. Welcome to Part 4 of our Legal Roundtable, in which leading information security and privacy attorneys talk about the top issues of 2013. In this installment, the topic is breach response, and we talk about the most significant incidents of 2012 and which organizations responded well and badly to these breaches. Leading off our discussion today are Ronald Rather, partner at Faruqi Ireland and Cox, and David Nevetta, founder of the Information Law Group. Ron, there are so many incidents to choose from, but what would you say were some of the most significant breaches of 2012, and why would you designate those? Uh, well, it's difficult to say, uh, really identify which one are the most significant. I think there are some exemplary ones that really show the trends that we were seeing in 2012, and so walking through those, I think, uh, would be uh, helpful. And, and to the extent that they're showing the trends, obviously, the, you know, they're significant. Uh, the first would be uh, global payments, uh, which is a breach uh, that happened towards the beginning of the year uh, involving a company that processes uh, Visa credit cards. And I think the significance of, of that particular incident was that it involved a company that was presumably uh, PCI compliant. So oftentimes we hear regulators, we hear individuals generally talking about standards and the importance of standards and meeting those standards and how uh, those ought to uh, mitigate or, or avoid uh, breaches. And I think global payments is uh, a good example of even when you meet uh, certain uh, requirements uh, in terms of standards, you're still susceptible to breaches. And so I think global payments is important from that perspective. Another uh, example, and we've talked about it already during today's call, is the uh, Barnes & Noble's uh, pen pad hack. Really, why is that important? It's important because uh, I think it reveals the fact that uh, the vulnerabilities aren't just the sophisticated uh, schemes where the bad guys are trying to hack through uh, large, sophisticated firewalls uh, with uh, complicated software malware. Uh, but rather, it shows, again, the ingenuity of criminals uh, and their ability to uh, use common, common everyday devices uh, to find vulnerabilities in them and then being able to scale those vulnerabilities uh, in order to effectuate you know, financial fraud. The other important thing about the PinPad hack is it's not new. It's something that we saw you know, three or four years ago uh, and now is making a resurgence. So I think it's another good lesson in that don't forget about the vulnerabilities that were out there in the past because if we do, uh, they're often uh, likely to repeat themselves so that a good criminal will keep trying uh, eat, you know, different ways to be able to apply their trade. And sometimes that means doing things that they've done previously and, and we've maybe gotten a little bit relaxed uh, in terms of dealing with past threats because we're so focused on what's uh, current and what people are talking about in the future. The other one is the Yahoo and LinkedIn uh, hacks, and, and why do I think those are interesting? They are because these are two you know, fairly large, presumably sophisticated companies, and, and the issue there was storing passwords in plain text, something that uh, we all ought to know not to do, but for uh, whatever reason, those vulnerabilities are still out there. I don't think that Yahoo and LinkedIn are alone in believing that they're somehow immune uh, from having to protect against what I consider to be somewhat 
customary and plain types of vulnerabilities, you know, storing passwords in uh, some type of hash or encryption, to me, ought to be commonplace today. So I think it's important for that. And then lastly, the uh, breach involving the South Carolina Department of Revenue. And I think that's an, an interesting uh, in a lot of respects. One is that uh, it reaffirms sort of what we saw three or four, even five years ago, that uh, the government uh, often remains one of the more vulnerable uh, areas in which uh, bad guys are able to ply their trades. Um, so four or five years ago, it seemed to be that education uh, and education institutions were you know, in the center of the target of bad guys. And, and so the, this incident involving the South Carolina Department of Revenue reminds us that our government institutions are still vulnerable. But I think even just as interesting is the fact that there was a third-party vendor involved, and that's Trustway. Uh, and in the lawsuits that have come out of that South Carolina data breach, Trustway is named as a defendant. And I think it's interesting from the perspective of now seeing that, uh, in essence, the equivalent of outsourcing, in this case outsourcing security, uh, technical process and procedures, uh, but that this outsourcing entity, Trustway, uh, is come within the scope of plaintiff's, accounts, of plaintiff's counsel and, and uh, uh, is involved in this data breach, the response, and the ensuing litigation. Uh, well, I, I, a couple points to follow up on, uh, on what Ron said. So, uh, on, on Trustwave and, and assuming the basically security company, I do think that's a very interesting issue. Now, what I, where I often see this is when the breach, uh, I'm representing a company that's been breached. We start looking at, for instance, in the critical context, uh, the point of sale vendor to see if they were um, putting configuring the system in a way that was inappropriate or not DCI compliant. And so I think um, beyond the, you know, the plaintiff going after the service provider, um, I think we're going to see more and more uh, companies going after the service provider themselves after they suffered a breach, blaming the service provider for failing to have adequate security and causing allowing the breach to happen in the first place. And this is just a natural result of all the outsourcing that goes on, all the cloud computing and third-party reliance that we have now on, on uh, entities that are actually doing the data processing. Following up on your, your question or your, your point about passwords being stolen, from a breach notification standpoint, it's, it's interesting because typically username and password for most states are, are not, it's not considered the type of information that if stolen, you need to provide notice about. So it's kind of, it, it kind of falls between the cracks when it comes to a breach notification and, and, and regulatory scrutiny on some level. But I think with these high-profile breaches, like with Yahoo and LinkedIn and, and Blizzard, which is a gaming company, uh, we've seen exactly what happens when these, uh, that, that type of information is stolen. Unfortunately, many people use their use same username and password for multiple sites, even perhaps their banking sites uh, and their you know, e-commerce type of sites. And so the bad guys have figured this out and, and, and have decided that they don't need to worry about identity theft and creating new identities by stuff just use the credentials that exist in a, in a common username password for a particular individual and start logging into the various e-commerce sites that are common across the, the world or in the U.S. at least and start buying things. And then I've had calls from frantic companies who all of a sudden realize that all the purchases they just fulfilled were actually from a hacker who had stolen someone's username and password. And so you have to think beyond identity theft and, and kind of what happens on the, uh, the front end and think about how certain information like username and password could be used a few steps beyond the actual theft to create havoc or, or allow for, for criminal activity. 
and then, you know, beyond breach notification laws and their strict requirements, you know, would it be appropriate for some sort of voluntary notice perhaps to warn customers, even from a business point of view, uh, of a potential breach involving this type of information? I think those are some of the you know, key questions companies are going to have to struggle with uh, when there are situations where, you know, breach notification laws themselves are not strictly uh, triggered. Ron, one of your specialties is breach response. Which organizations have you seen respond particularly well or particularly badly to the incidents that we've talked about? I think we're seeing some pretty common characteristics uh, with regard to proper uh, breach response and, and always starting from the premise that, you know, one size is not fit all. So I think David made uh, a good point that uh, sometimes companies feel like it is the appropriate thing to do to provide notice even though uh, the statutes may not require them to do so. The problem, of course, is that the media and the public in general doesn't parse those uh, fine legal distinctions, um, but instead, you know, lumps those companies with, you know, in the same bucket uh, as the companies that are having to disclose a breach with regard to something that the law at least considers to be more sensitive, uh, for example, uh, healthcare information uh, or financial information. What we saw, I think, in the last year is it's, you know, some, some companies did a good job of realizing that they must customize their communication plan to the specific incident, and other companies that used a more formulaic approach, and I think got uh, caught up in that. So uh, looking at the latter, I think global payments uh, and their initial response uh, to uh, the events, I think, exemplify uh, how a company can uh, get caught up in that formula- formulaic response and uh, get caught under the pressures of uh, checking the box and and just flowing through their written incident response plan without necessarily looking at all the implications. The the important thing, of course, is to balance accuracy and speed. Uh, And Sometimes the two are in conflict with each other. The speed comes from the expectation of the media and and the regulators, uh, the people that are looking over our shoulders uh, to question why it took so long uh, for the company to uh, come forward and, and and bring public the fact of the breach with the uh, concept and the idea being that, you know, once you make that information public, then the consumer can be proactive in protecting themselves. Of course, balanced against that is the need to to be accurate, to make sure that what you're saying uh, is, of course, complete and true. And if you can't say, if you don't have complete answers at that moment, then you need to qualify uh, what you're saying based on that. Unfortunately for global payments, you know, when they first came out, uh, they announced that the breach involved uh, you know, 1.5 million people. Uh, they made uh, certain representations about uh, what was the cause of the breach, whether it was track one or track two uh, data, which is important in terms of uh, how easily it is to misuse uh, somebody's credit card information. Uh, and Visa, of course, came out around the same time uh, and issued statements that were inconsistent with what global payments was saying. So, you know, really the consequence of that is a loss of uh, customer confidence in the company, uh, confusion within the regulators, and I think opportunities for uh, plaintiff litigation counsel uh, to use those communications, to use the inconsistencies uh, to tarnish the company in subsequent actions. On the other side of that, uh, you know, there I think there were some companies that, did an effective job of not only balancing accuracy and speed, but also using the right media uh, to communicate uh, the event, what transpired, uh, and and just as importantly, what consumers ought to do uh, to help protect themselves against any uh, consequences. 
Interestingly, you know, I think a good example of how to do it right was Zappos. Uh, even though Zappos uh, involved information that arguably did not require a breach notice, uh, when you look at how they uh, used uh, the website, uh, in particular they had a, a website set up so that different audiences could go and look at generally, you know, frequently asked questions that were more pertinent to their special interests. So if you were a consumer, you could go to a page and see questions and answers that would be relative to you. If you were an investor, there was a separate page uh, that would have the information that was pertinent to you and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think that, you know, generally speaking, companies realizing that one size doesn't fit all, uh, but, but likewise, um, balancing accuracy and speed, uh, transparency, and making sure that you're using the right medium uh, to uh, reach the, the group of people that are really going to be interested uh, and need the assistance during the data breach response period. So, Ron, given all you've talked about here, what would you say are some of the lessons that we've learned about breach response in 2012? Uh, well, one size does not fit all. Um, so I think you need to look at... Uh, a lot of different factors, including you know, the market that your that the company's in, uh, the type of data that's at, that's at issue, uh, who is the audience that you need to speak with, balancing accuracy and speed, dealing with what I talked about in terms of transparency and using the right media, also making sure that you, that there's accountability. So it's it's important that the public understand that the company is is oftentimes a victim in these matters. Uh, as well as you know, their customers uh, or the consumers whose data they're managing. But likewise, the company still needs to be accountable and recognize publicly that they ought to be a trusted actor when it comes uh, to dealing with data, um, especially in terms of future concerns. You want to maintain those consumer relationships, and so I think you have to have accountability. So it means having uh, the right spokesperson and having that spokesperson say the right and balanced things. Um, the other important thing that I think we started um, really addressing in 2011 and it's carried over to into 2012, and that's being proactive with the regulators. So it's not waiting till the notices are sent and then following up uh, or waiting for the regulators to call you and then reacting to that, but obviously being proactive with them, uh, knowing who the important regulators are going to be based on the various components that are at issue, you know, what state is my client located in, uh, who are the AGs, the attorney generals that, are, that have a particular interest in this topic. Uh, so before, there were some clear actors that were generally uh, interested in privacy, and now we're starting to see um, some attorney generals who have a heightened interest in uh, health information, uh, HIPAA-regulated HIPAA issues others, AG, show, showing a particular interest in, in uh, other topics and knowing the right people to contact and then speaking with them even before the notice goes out. And quite frankly, uh, in a lot of instances, asking the Attorney General to review the form of notice, even when it's not required by the applicable statutes. And that brings us to the end of this fourth installment of our Legal Roundtable and our fifth and final installment the attorneys come together to talk about legislative trends they foresee in 2013 in the U.S. as well as globally. Until then, for Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.